Iowa correctional facilities are almost 20% over capacity. We'll talk with Beth Skinner, the director of the Iowa Department of Corrections, about those challenges and more on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond, celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS. This is the Friday, August 26th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Henderson. Our guest today began at the Iowa Department of Corrections as an intern in 2002. In 2019, Governor Reynolds appointed her to be the director of the Department of Corrections. She did have a brief sojourn in that uh, career at the department. She was part of a national group that was focused on recidivism. Beth Skinner, welcome to Iowa Press. Thank you for the opportunity, Kay. Also joining the conversation are Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. Director Skinner, uh, recently the department changed its mail policy for mail that comes in to inmates. I wanted to have you talk about that change and what went into that and why. Sure. So let me take you back a couple years. So during the pandemic, uh, there was an influx of K2 not only coming into the Iowa Department of Corrections, but we were seeing it nationally. And K2 is? K2 is a synthetic drug. Um, it can cause, it's, it's made of various toxic chemical compounds. It can change quite frequently, so it's very hard to track. Um, but it, it also causes erratic behavior, paranoia. It causes serious physical issues. Um, people get very sick. They vomit. Um, and so uh, we saw this influx, so we investigated it. And what we realized uh, at Clorinda, there was basically uh, over 60 individuals involved in K2, where they were um, it was getting distributed, they were ingesting it, but it was coming through the U.S. mail. So we wanted to be proactive. We didn't, we didn't want anyone to be, you know, lose their life. Uh, we didn't want, to make, we didn't want our, our prison to be unsafe. Um, we want, you know, our number one goal is to make sure that our prison is as safe as possible. By changing the mail process, it is proactive, again, one, and two, it's going to keep people safe. Because uh, I will tell you, I've seen videos and instances of individuals that are under K2, and it's scary. So that's what we did because we want to, one life be too much if someone lost their life because and of I, too. And I imagine that's a, a balancing act, right? Because, and I'm wondering how you weigh that for a policy like that because this mail is also, you know, some of these inmates only window to the outside and, world. And, and there's research that shows that people who maintain contact with the outside world do better when they get out 
of prison. How do you kind of balance so, those things while also wanting to keep facilities safe, like you said? Th- that's, that's a good point, Aaron. So let me tell you is that, so these, the letters, the postcards, the pictures that they're getting scanned look like the originals. They're in color copies. Um, and please, I, I want to share too with you all that we know the importance of family. We know the importance of pro-social support. We know 95% of people are going to get out. We know the importance of families. So I will tell you that we make sure that they have that connection. We also added video visitation after the pandemic because we realized that connection with family is going to help them be successful when they get out in their communities. And so for people who are just joining this concept, mail is going to a facility in Las Vegas, correct? Correct. And then it's being digitized and then presented as a copy, correct? Correct. So the process is, is that they send the mail the family members' loved ones send the mail to Las Vegas. The company we're working with is Pigeonly. They have to have it scanned within 24 hours and sent back out to the prisons. So again, they go back and color copies. Um, and right now we've been implement, implementing this for a month. So we are really watching carefully to how, see how long the mail is taking to get to, to from the facility to our prisons and make sure there's not any extended delays. Because we know the importance of of family members, you know, getting pictures of their kids and letters from their children or their, their loved ones. It's a big part of them, you know, a part of their being incarcerated is, is having that connection to the outside. Last year, we're going to switch here, the Department of Corrections was in the news a lot in the state because of the death of two staff members at the prison in Anamosa in a failed uh, escape attempt. There was a report that came out uh, there was conversation about some of the communication issues within the prison at Anamosa, staffing levels. What's an update on what's been done uh, since that report came out at the end of last year? Sure. Oh, we, I, I will say, I would, first and foremost, somebody have kudos to our administration and our staff. They have worked endlessly to, to make sure and to, we make the recommendation that CGL made, which is the company, that we execute those, those recommendations. So I'll just give you kind of a list of a few things that we have accomplished. Um, we hired a security operations director. We hired an additional 85 full-time employees. Uh, we added canines. We added the mail process. Uh, we added um, a compliance office, a training office. Uh, we, have a, we had a security summit. Uh, we also had, uh, we hired a recruitment and retention specialist. Um, we really, really, and that's only, it's only been over a year. And we've put all these pieces into place. And another thing I think that's important, too, is we brought pre-service back, which is our, our academy. So it's more centralized and there's fidelity to the work. So our, tr- our staff get the training they need to be as safe as they can be. And are you talking uh, generally for Department of Corrections or are you talking specifically to Anamosa? General to, general to, yes. So what's the current staffing level at the Anamosa prison and how has that changed? Sure. You know, we still have numerous uh, vacancies open right now. We are working very, very hard to fill those positions. Uh, you may have seen on the radio, commercials, billboards. Uh, we've been at the fair, job fairs, university. We're, we are really putting our foot on the gas to recruit. Um, and, you know, we're working hard. And um, so we added a, an additional 40 uh, full-time positions. We had added a lot of security infrastructure at Anamosa around cameras, body scammers, uh, body, body scanners, uh, uh, fiber, things like that. So we did some more fencing. Uh, so we've made a lot of improvements since then. And as far as funding levels, how has that changed and how has that helped for recruitment uh, for staff and what kind of a pitch are you giving as to why somebody would want to be uh, working in the Department of Corrections? As somebody who started as yes, an intern Yes, I was going to say, that's a great right? segue for there that. There you go. Um, so, you know, I started in early 2000 and 
And as you know, you, some people just stumble into corrections. I thought I was going to be a police officer. And I did it because I had a class I had to take. And I fell in love with corrections. Um, it was, uh, I, I, didn't, I left for like a short period of time, as Kay mentioned. Uh, but I've been working at corrections for almost 20 years. And I will tell you, it is the most rewarding career anyone can have. I just, you know, it's, it's challenging. Um, every day is different. You are a public servant. You're serving your community. You have a family. You have a team. You're giving back. Um, to me, that it's and you got great. You got great benefits. You have a can have a healthy retirement. Just all the things that go along with it. It's just a very. It's an excellent job. It's a great career, and I'm so proud to be sitting in this chair today as director of corrections. And so, have funding levels uh, gone up to the point where you can make more hires? You can do that kind of work. Do you feel like you're getting the kind of support that you need? Absolutely. You know, we received um, you know twenty million twenty million dollars from the legislature. And we have used those funds. We have been very diligent with the taxpayer dollars. Uh, we are, like I said, we are able to add an additional 85 full-time positions. Like I said, canines, um, compliance officers, a security director. We really shored up our personnel with that money, and it's been used very wisely. And we're very, very, <clears throat> excuse me, appreciative of those funds. What about communications ability among people mm -hmm. in Anamosa, which is an old facility? Mm -hmm. Communications with staff or with incarcerated with individuals? radios. Oh, yeah, the radios. Yeah, we, one of the things we did, we did upgrades in our radios across the state. Because that was an issue that was um, identified by the consultant, correct? Uh, not specifically okay. at Anabosa. Um, we did some, upgrade, some upgrades. Our radios were working fine. Um, but, you know, you do have to upgrade your, upgrade your radios on a regular basis because of the software and things like that. So we did a, a radio upgrade um, regardless. So that wasn't the main issue. Um, but, yeah, communication is fine. Uh, it is an old prison, so, you know, probably our biggest issue is Wi-Fi. It's getting the fiber, enough fiber to lines to get through to get Wi-Fi in certain areas for classrooms, for, for cognitive behavioral type programs, for education, but doesn't cause a radio issue. One of the things identified in the report was uh, the, the perpetrators in the, in the um, tragedy were using tools that were available through an apprenticeship program. And, and this is kind of another one of those how do you balance quest, uh, questions because... These programs are designed to help prepare inmates for careers or Correct. be ready for when they... So, so how do you balance having those available, but again, keeping uh, your population safe because those tools were used, unfortunately, um, in, a, in a tragic way? Mm -hmm. And have, have those programs changed in any way since the incident? Sure. I'm going to try to remember your two-part question. <laughs> um, first, uh, what we did you know, immediately is we did a tool control review. Mm -hmm. We also develop a job classification assessment, which looks specifically at certain variables that may put someone at a higher risk to use tools. We also develop a database or a job classification database. So anyone that's going to carry a tool, whether it be a class A, B, or C tool, has to be run through that assessment. And some people are not able to carry tools. Uh, we did move some of our um, uh, Iowa prison industry uh, programs out of Anamosa. Um, and so we put those into more of our media minimum security type facilities. So we've changed operations quite a bit since um, the tragic murders of Bob Moreno. And in the report, it, it, one of the things it said that those changes were in place, but there were still some maybe inconsistent policies from facility to facility. Has that been addressed? Do you feel like there's one you know, strategy that applies now across the board? Sure. Um, so what we did, we, we hired Brian Foss, who's our security operations director. 
And we really wanted to make sure we really focused on policy, policy procedure in our audit process. So part of the recommendations, too, that came from CGL was a compliance office. So we have hired compliance officers that are following up to make sure those you know, tool controls are, are people are following them uh, and other of our security operations. So we really doubled down on making sure that we are compliant. Um, you know, we just did a few audits just, audits just this week on some of our prisons. So uh, we, are, we are scrutinizing that and we're making sure that, you know, we, we do find something that might be a deficiency that we're following up and it gets done and gets taken care of. So what kind of tools are we talking about and what, what is being made at quote unquote prison industries? Oh, I mean, it depends on, so it depends on the industries. I mean, it could be balloons, um, it could be, um, you know, packing balloons, it could be making signs, it could be making license plates. Um, you know, we're, we're getting out of the woodworking business, so we're not, we're not doing that um, as much. Um, so, yeah, the tool, I mean, tools can be anywhere from a screwdriver to, you know, a potential saw to a hammer to whatever that may be, but all the tools have a certain classification. The more potential for da- danger with a tool, the higher classification and the less people that can get their hands on it. Another issue, overcrowding in prisons. Mm-hmm. What can the Department of Corrections do to address overcrowding? And uh, what do you see as uh, ways to solve the issue in the state? So as you probably all know, is that corrections, we're kind of, we're bookend, right? Yeah. So we have the courts and then we have the board of parole. However, we do have some control of that in the terms of so reentry begins at day one. When someone comes into, a, into our prison, we're already planning for reentry. A lot of people think reentry starts the day that they get a release. We start at day one. We work very hard. We identify the needs. When we say needs, those criminogenic factors that drive criminal behavior, we address those needs in prison with programming, treatment, uh, core correctional practices. Uh, we train our officers in, in a certain kind of interaction like skills that they can use not just in a classroom but like on the unit. Um, we do very comprehensive reentry planning. Uh, we we want to do a warm handoff of the community-based corrections. Um, just recently, you're piloting a Tech to Connect program, which is actually the community-based corrections is reaching into the prison with tablets, so they can get more treatment and more comprehensive reentry before they leave. So, if we do our job in corrections in terms of getting prepared for reentry, knowing 95% are going to come back to their communities. That's the part we can play because it means we're preparing them and they're good candidates for release. Are there needs for more uh, capacity for prisoners, uh, new facilities? Uh, I mean, that has a, we'll get a little bit more into recidivism here in a moment, but Mm -hmm. I mean, just in general speaking, the population and the growth of the the prison populations, how, how do you address that? Yeah, so no, we're not, we have no plans to expand or build any other, other prisons. And right now, in the last you know, probably month, our prison population is starting to decline. Uh, it's moving in the right direction. Um, you know, again, you know, we have a great relation, relationship with the Board of Parole. They're a separate entity. Uh, but we want to make sure that they, they see the things they, they need to see in order to make that informed decision. So we work closely with them in a sense, like what information do you want to know? So we do our part so they have the information to make an informed decision. And again, I think it's really important to know that Public safety is our number one priority. We want to make sure that the people that we are letting out are prepared to reenter and they're good candidates to go out in front of the Board of Parole. Does, does the Corrections Department ever get involved in debates among lawmakers? There's talk now of addressing nonviolent offenders, you know, should, should marijuana be criminalized, examples like that. Does, does the Corrections Department ever get involved in that from the perspective of maybe 
people are coming to us that don't need to be that would be better served? No, we don't. We don't get involved in those conversations. Um, again, we were on that that bookend. We we you know we take who the courts send us, and then we release those who the border parole <laughs> says can be released. Uh, there are there are people that flatten out. When we say flatten out, that means that they leave prison with no time. Is that ideal? No. We want people to have time and supervision so they don't fall through the cracks. Because just to put a finer kind of point on that is that reentry can be challenging. If you imagine yourself being incarcerated for five, ten years and get out, the world has changed. It changes very quickly. So we want to make sure that they have time to get out and someone catches them and they get the wraparound services to address any kind of mental health issue or substance abuse issue or transportation or jobs. So uh, that's just really, really a priority for us. I want to talk about mental health in the context of the people who are coming into your facility. But first, how many people enter without a high school degree and can they get a GED when they're in prison, number one? It ranges from about 30 to 40 percent coming without a high school or high set of high school degree. Um, we, we provide high set. Um, we try to make sure, depending on how long they're with us, to make sure they get out with their, you know, with their diploma or their high set because um, we know it builds social and human capital. Um, you know, we have tutors. We have, you know, we, have, we have great partnerships with the various community colleges. I will tell you from my, my seat where I'm sitting right now, education is very important, and we want to make sure that they get at least their high school, if not post-secondary, if we can, because we know it reduces recidivism. What about substance abuse mm-hmm. issues? Yes. So, you know, probably about 60% of our population has a substance abuse issue. So when they come into intake, we, we evaluate that. Um, we have options to, uh, we have different programming that they can get involved in and things like that. Um, it becomes, sometimes it becomes difficult with people that have substance abuse issues in prison because it's kind of like artificial in a sense because they are, um, they're dry and they're not engaging in drugs because they're in the prison. However, they, you know, they do get drugs in and they can make alcohol, but um, you know, but we want to prepare them for those that are going out that do have substance abuse issues to make sure they have treatment on the, on, when, they, when they get out, they immediately go into treatment. We hear from county sheriffs who say, my county jail has turned into a mental health facility. Mm-hmm. How many, what percentage of prisoners have a diagnosed mental illness and how are you handling that in the system? Anywhere from 65 to 70% have uh, a mental health issue. Um, I can tell you, in the women's facility, 95% are on some psychotropic medication. Uh, we have an amazing team in corrections. We have Dr. Greenfield, who's our medical director <clears throat> and a practicing psychiatrist, has a team. We assess people as soon as they come in the doors. If they have, you know, we, if we do like a screen, and if we flag them for a screen, then we do a full-blown diagnostic on them, and then we get them the treatment they need. And we, might, we try to stabilize them. And then once they get out, we make sure they have medication, they have a prescription, for, you know, so they don't fall through the cracks while they're waiting to see a mental health provider. Your undergrad degree, I think, is in psychology? Correct. So how has that changed? I mean, has it always been a huge majority had a diagnosed mental illness among uh, the population? As long as I've been in corrections, and I haven't been in corrections as a lot of people have been, but... <laughs> Um, almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. I know I look like I'm 20. But anyway, um, as long as I've been in corrections, I, mental, you know, mental health people, mental illnesses have been in the system. And you know, even when I started in the early 2000s, it was an issue. 
One of the possibilities that was mentioned in the wake of the Anamosa incident is body cameras on um, corrections officers. Is that being considered or, or being in, uh, installed? What's the latest there? It's being implemented. Okay. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great, um, I think it's a great tool, uh, not only for our staff, to protect our staff, but those protect those that are incarcerated as well. Um, it also could be a training tool for us. Um, staff seem to like it. Um, at first, I think, you know, maybe some people were like, you're not sure about this, but people also realize it protects them as well. And so, yeah, we, we have them in almost all of our institutions now, and um, we keep kind of, it takes money to obviously to finance those cameras, but our hope is to have them on every single person. By? The next year or so. Okay. I actually want to circle back to what Kay was just talking about with the percentages of mental health, substance abuse issues. I think from your perspective, having a different perspective than maybe a lot of people that are in a position like yours, uh, how do you get in front of this so that those people aren't having to come through the Department of Corrections? What needs to be done on the front end in this society in the state of Iowa to prevent people from having to go to prison to get those kinds of services? You're, you're touching on my social work side now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I think a big thing, you know, from my perspective, my perspective being as a research background, is diversion. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, instead of taking people to jail... Um, we take them to hospitals, we find them beds. Um, of course, that becomes a bed capacity issue, correct? Um, but I think we are getting so much more thoughtful and strategic about that. And I, I see people having that conversation now. And I, I see things happening even now around let's expand beds. Or where can we put these individuals instead of putting them in jail or arresting and putting them in jail or putting them in the corrections? Let's put them in a bed or an in, you know, inpatient bed, or <clears throat> excuse me, or an outpatient facility. But we, I think we're starting to move the needle, and I'm very hopeful that those, conversa- those conversations will continue, but it's very important. And when you say we, is that, I mean, the Department of Corrections taking a, a That's lead all of on us. That? That's I all think of that's, us? I think, okay. so one thing I just, Clay, just to share with you is that I see corrections as one point in the criminal justice system, right? You have policy, policy, you know, policies made, you have law enforcement, courts, corrections, board of parole, you have community-based corrections. We all have to do our part in order to really divert these individuals and to keep them in the community. As long as they're not posing a public safe, safety risk, they should be in their communities. And I, again, I think we still have to continue to build capacity. Like I said, I think we're having the right conversations. We just need to continue to build that capacity. One of the conversations among legislators recently has been about a program specifically at Newton mm-hmm. where um, people are building a house mm-hmm. and then it's moved off the site there and somewhere else. Mm-hmm. How is that going? How many have been made? Okay. So to date, we've had 30 houses that we've sent out. Uh, this year we're on track for 29. Uh, this program is incredible. It's a great partnership. We call it the win-win, meaning that those indivi- our incarcerated individuals are getting s- skills in a very high-demand job. So when they get out, they get very good jobs, livable wages, and we're making affordable homes for Iowans. So it's been great. We just we, we want to get more people through the program. Um, if you go, drive past Newton, you can see there's just houses peppered all over, and they're getting experience in electrical, plumbing, you know, HVAC, you know, you know, woodworking. It's just incredible, and I would encourage anyone to to take a tour of Homes for Iowa. It's amazing. So, do you have apprenticeships set up with um, some of the trades? Yes, we have we have about 29 or maybe 30 apprenticeship programs. We've had over 300 graduates. Uh, what we know is that apprenticeship programs reduce recidivism. 
So, you know, we want to double down on, on our apprenticeship programs, and we know that a lot of these individuals that are doing these apprenticeship programs are getting out and getting jobs and not coming back to us, and that's a win. So, very excited about that. And that's a great segue to something else we wanted to ask you about, and it's also an area of your expertise. You mentioned that short time that you took off from corrections, mm-hmm. you were involved with a group that was looking at reentry and recidivism rates. What, what, are, what are the things you're trying to implement in corrections or, or maybe just overarching you know, themes, and, and how is the state doing at keeping that rate of people coming back to you as low as possible? Right. First of all, I'm very glad you asked that question, Aaron. So I just want to explain what recidivism is, just so everyone knows what it is. So it's when someone leaves prison, if they return in three years, whether it be because they, violate, they had, uh, got revoked from their conditions of supervision or they committed a new crime. Um, and so, first of all, I'll share with you some really good news. And I should stop you real quick, just that you have about a minute left, so just so okay. you know that. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna do, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest first. There you go. So, um, recidivism, recidivism went down last year for the first time in six years. For the first time publicly, I'm sharing with you all that recidivism has gone down another 1.7% this year. And that is because our staff has worked so hard to do evidence-based practices have fidelity to the work they do, their commitment, their passion for people to have second chances, knowing they're going back in their communities. They've done a lot of work. We've had a lot of plates spinning. We've executed a lot, and that's why we're seeing that success. So what is the percentage overall? 37%. So over the the course of two years, it's gone down almost 3%. So how high had it gotten? Oh, it's been up near 40, over 40. Mm -hmm. How do we compare to states around us? That's challenging because every state measures measures it differently. Right now, there's a huge national uh, initiative right now that's trying to get all states to measure recidivism the same way so we're comparable. Uh, But if you compare states that actually measure it to the same way we do, we do pretty well. We're probably in the top ten. Well, I have to measure our time here, and (laughs) we are out of it. So thank you today for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for this opportunity, and thank you both, too. Appreciate it. And you can watch every episode of Iowa Press at iowapbs.org. For everyone here at Iowa PBS, thanks for watching. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.